Welcome, everybody. This is the Prepared Mindset Podcast. If you're just joining us for the first time, I am your host, Austin. And if you're joining us for, I guess, any time past your first time, welcome back, everyone. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks for jumping on to see what we got going this week. Uh, It's, you know, July, man. We are cruising through the summer. I was listening to sports radio the other day, and they're like, yeah, you know, like six weeks until until fall's here. We're going to be at the end of August, and college football starts. I'm like, God damn, man, it is flying by. It seems like we couldn't get it to start on time, at least here in Michigan, and then now we're we're in the thick of it, and you know, before you know it, we'll be to the fall. I guess that's just uh, the way she goes. But uh, you know, a couple of programming notes here. I guess I mean I sound like a radio host, uh, but maybe a quick note of mention because at the time of this recording. Uh, July 18th registration as of I believe 5 p.m. Eastern today opened for the HFA range day event in Pennsylvania Uh, they're not a sponsor they didn't pay me to say this but it's a fantastic event you guys and every single cent that is earned from this event from these instructors that are uh, you know coming out to to basically teach every cent of that goes towards uh goes to deliver fund towards raising awareness for human trafficking if you guys have seen sound of freedom uh that's a it's a very hot topic right now because of that film and rightfully so it's a huge issue uh dylan ruth uh are you guys you know if you don't mind instagram ruthless actual he is the one that has been putting that event uh together it was for previously the green beret foundation he has gotten together with some partners um and it is now uh the hfa range event for human trafficking awareness uh lots of good classes lots of great instructors you guys know people like uh you know jared from orion training group uh blake water there's and and tons more right chance uh who's been on the pod a couple times as well uh chance cooper's gonna be doing a vehicle course there so if you guys are listening to this go head over to their instagram page hfa underscore range underscore day i believe it is uh go to the link in the bio and register head on up if you're in the even remote area to i believe it's templeton pennsylvania at ben franklin range you can go sign up it's like a hundred bucks you guys it is it is by far and away the greatest deal on quality instruction you will get um so this week on the pod i have uh brian who is the owner of slytac training formerly of centrifuge training you guys may have seen him uh, on the triarch videos on uh on youtube a couple years back uh sit down with him get into the ins and outs of how he basically got to where he's at today right with slytac uh talking about low light applications vehicle combatives injured shooter things like that that he he teaches and i would i would dare i say right specializes in uh so very very cool opportunity to sit down chat with him and pick his brain and i think you guys are really really gonna dig everything brian's got to share with you before i get over into this week's interview though as always this is you know a podcast that has some really really awesome partners uh, first and foremost are our Patreon patrons. If you guys are a Patreon patron, thank you so, so much for your support. That goes so much further than you guys even realize, and it means so much to the team here uh, that, that you guys support us. Uh, we got videos, blogs, drills, targets. We're trying to do as much as we can over on the Patreon page where there's, I guess, less of an eye, less scrutiny. Uh, go to, you know, Go check it out, man. It's in our link tree on our bio in Instagram or it's patreon.com forward slash prepared underscore mindset underscore pod. Uh, past that, we also have some really cool partners that help support us. And I'm going to say thank you to all of them right now. Also, if you guys are in the market for some gear, stay tuned. These, uh, these people may be able to save you some money, uh, with some discount codes. So huge thanks 
big props to Midwest Gunworks. Guys, they've been in business since 1997. This is not a fly-by-night operation. It's not one of these weird internet gun retailers that, you know, says they have stuff in stock. You order it. They sit on your money for 90 days, and then they ship it out to you once they actually finally have it in stock. You know, Midwest Gunworks, if they say they have it, they're going to get it to you a couple days Great team over there with lots and lots of parts, components, and pieces available to finish that AR build you've been working on. Magazines, optics, and red dots, full firearms, uh, uppers and lowers, all kinds of good stuff. You guys can head to MidwestGunWorks.com. Use discount code PREPAREDMINDSET to save 5% off your order. Everything you guys need and more, let Midwest take care of you. It's a family-owned uh, business. Like I said, they've been around since 97. Guys, there are some of you listening to this podcast who can legally own firearms who weren't even alive in 97. So let that sink in. Again, discount code prepared mindset will save you 5% off your order at MidwestGunWorks.com. Second, thank you to HRT Tactical Gear. I was actually just emailing Chris today. And guys, if you are looking for your first plate carrier or even a better plate carrier, something that's load-bearing, it's going to give you the ability to molly on your cummerbund, zip on back panels because you're just getting to a point in training or maybe for work where you need to have that that accessibility, you need to have those extra capabilities, those add-on features, head to uh, HRT Tactical Gear, excuse me, hrttacticalgear.com and check out what they have. You know, their L-back, their rack, their A-track are their plate carriers. Extremely well-made, guys. They use top-notch materials. The assembly, the quality is fantastic. I have one of their L-back carriers they sent out to me, and I love this thing. It is so well thought out and well-engineered compared to anything else I've ever used. They also have belts, mag pouches. Just had a friend send me pictures. Ordered two pistol, two rifle pouches. Love the retention, and they use the Tigris material for their malice clips. Great, great company down in Ohio, our neighbors to the south here in Michigan, and just doing the right things. These guys were professional end users and trainers before they switched to the nylon market. Love everything that they're doing. That's hrttacticalgear.com. Head over to the website and pick up some new gear. Thank you as well to 100 Concepts. Guys, at this point, I kind of doubt they need an introduction. I think everybody in the community kind of knows who 100 Concepts is, but if you don't, These guys are doing the good work out there. Garrett, Pierce, and Jonah have come out with a line of scope caps. They have come out with a line of light caps, pack scrim, helmet scrim, and now even hex caps. They can go on your offset dot, or maybe if you just run a regular, you know, aim point T1, T2 on your rifle, they give you their hex cap line that is a kill flash that will help address reflection and glare off of those nice shiny surfaces like your flashlights, your scopes, your red dots. Great, great products. The company's motto is do good, be dangerous, and live free. Head on over to 100concepts.com or T-Rex Arms and Big Tech's Ordnance. They carry their stuff. These guys are making moves in the industry. Keep an eye on them. And I know they got a couple really, really cool you know, uh, surprises up their sleeve in the next couple weeks, next couple months here. So stay tuned, 100concepts.com. And a big final thank you to the team over at LARP Labs. Guys, if you are painting your rifle don't want to paint your optic, you don't want to paint your laser, you're concerned about voiding a warranty, maybe not doing a good tape job, you're going to ruin something, you're just apprehensive. I get it, man. That's where LARP Labs comes in. Head on over to LARPLabs.com and check out their entire catalog. They just redid the site. These computer cut 3M vinyl graphics that you guys can wrap your optics, your handheld lights, your PVS-14, your lasers, you can wrap all of your devices in this awesome vinyl. This stuff is 
super fucking tough. It's rated to sit outdoors in up to three years. It's not going to peel. It's not going to have any sticky residue. It's not a sticker. It's a vinyl. And they got it in Ranger Green. They got Multicam, M81, whatever you guys need to match your gear to help break up that silhouette. LARP Labs is your one-stop shop for your camouflage. Again, discount code here, prepared mindset, 10% off your order. So whether you're running an EOTech, an Aimpoint, Vortex, Hollow Sun, SIG, Cloud Defensive, whatever you guys need, they've got it. And if they don't, shoot them an email. Maybe they're working on it. I know there's several projects that John is uh, getting ready to pump out over the next several weeks here, next couple months here as the market demand increases. LARPLabs.com. So big, big shout out and a huge thank you to all of our partners, all of our Patreon patrons. You guys are incredible and you make this podcast what it is. Uh, but like I said, uh, my guest Brian this week, he is the owner and founder of SlyTech Training. Uh, you guys may have heard of them on Instagram. He did formerly work you know, with, uh, with Centrifuge and those guys, which a few people may know that name. Uh, but really, really awesome stuff. I think you guys are very much going to, to dig what we got going on this week as we continue to bring you guys just more more awesome guests. It's super fucking exciting to be able to talk with guys like Brian and, and hear about what they're doing and their approach to training. So, uh, I think with that, there's nothing else left to say, right? Let's just, uh, get on over to it. Hey, Brian, welcome to the pod, man. How you doing? Dude, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. Uh, I'm happy to have you. Uh, I've actually been following what your, uh, I guess I'll say content. I hate referring to this, uh, it, people's information is content, you know, cause I feel like it's disrespectful. Um, but like, I remember seeing some of the videos you did, uh, with Triarch a couple of years ago. Um, and then now the stuff, you know, on Instagram, uh, with SlyTech and everything. So I've been following you for a while, happy to be able to have you on and kind of dig in, um, to what, you know, what you're working on, what you do. Um, can you go ahead and let's just kick it off with, uh, introduce yourself to the, the audience, man. Yeah, man. So uh, my name is Brian Vellis, for those who don't know uh, of me. I'm the founder and lead instructor with SlyTech Training. Uh, and I've been a cop for, I think, 11 years now. Um, I, I can't always forget like how many years it is, uh, but it started early early 2012, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so yeah, I've been copping for 11 years. I work down on the border in uh, Del Rio, Texas. Uh, and so I work for a small agency down here for the sheriff's office. So nothing too crazy. Uh, but yeah, I've been doing that uh, I would say full-time cop work for at least a good, maybe seven, eight years. Right. And then I transitioned to part-time, uh, because I started teaching full-time with the company. Um, and that's kind of basically my background in a nutshell, but I'll, I'll give you a little bit more than that. Right. So, uh, man, I learned super early on in my career that my department wasn't about training. And, uh, if you've heard me on a podcast before, you probably heard this, right. So bear with me, but for those who haven't heard it, right. I'll, 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 do, I'll, I'll do a quick story on it. So again, like my department wasn't about training. It just, uh, not their fault, just a border town department. So there's not a lot of funding going on there. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I uh, got out of the academy. I started putting in for some classes. And of course, I was like, hey, I'm going to shoot for the stars, right? So I put in for a Haley strategic class. And this was like 2013 or something like that, right? Yeah, and yeah. Uh, my department's like, bro, like, how much is this class? Right? <laughs> like, 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 you need a hotel? And like, where is it at? And you need how much ammo? And my department's like, no, man, like, you're not even two years on the job yet and you're not even SWAT, you know, blah, blah, blah. So like, Hey, yes. find something else. Right. Yeah. So after about my fourth denial request, I was like, Hey, that's a clue. 
So I started busting my ass on overtime for like, I don't know, seven years straight. And all that overtime money went to gear, training, ammo, you know, practice, et cetera. That's all I did for a good seven years straight. Wasn't married at the time. So I had all the free time, right, to do that. Um, even now, I mean, I still spend a lot of time doing that, obviously, right? But uh, yeah, man, so I fell in love with, with training and shooting. And uh, it was probably around 2016 when I felt like I could be doing more within my life and my career um, within my department, you know, per se. There wasn't a lot of advancement opportunities there. Um, didn't want to become a detective, didn't want to become a sergeant and so forth. We had a small uh, regional like SWAT, a SWAT team there. Uh, but nothing major, right? So um, it was probably around then is when I actually took uh, a class called a VSCB instructor with uh, William Petty from Centuries Training, right? And I'll give Will credit for sure because he helped mentored me along the way. And so after I took that class and I kind of picked his brain on like, hey, man, what goes uh, what goes in on teaching outside the department? Because that's kind of where my mentality was, was wanting to start my own thing, my own company. Yeah. And so I picked his brain about that because there wasn't a lot of resources available, right? And uh, mm-hmm. and he was always receptive to like, hey, man, just come on out. Like, if you want to learn about teaching, right, to get better at it, just come on out. And I, I even told him, I was like, hey, man, I'm not looking to get paid. I'm just looking to get experience, just a shadow. You know, I'll do whatever you need me to do, hang targets, et cetera. So I came out to a, a class or two with him, kind of just watched and shadowed as I worked on my own company on the background. And then it was about 2018 when I launched SlideTac officially. And I did that full-time for two years with SlideTac. And then going on my second year, COVID hit. So it was like, oh man, I think I was scheduled for like 30-something yeah. classes, right? That's a real and then, nuts, right? Yeah. Yeah. And like I was scheduled for like 30 <laughs> classes and then I ended up teaching like four that year. Um, so uh, it, it was yeah. a big hit, man. Big hit for sure. I wasn't sure what was going to happen in 2021, but I was offered an opportunity to, to join Centrifuge uh, full-time for two years. So I was with them teaching full-time for two years, and then I decided to go back on my own this year. So I relaunched Slytac, and yeah, that's my background in a nutshell, man. Yeah, man, that's, you know, it's so let me ask you this. Do you, with what you, with your teaching and, you know, between Slytac and, and Centrifuge, do you run into, like, like your story a lot. Do you get a lot of other law enforcement uh, dudes that are struggling the way that it, you kind of did with your uh, agency or, or department where it's just, you know, access to training just isn't, I don't want to say it's not a priority, but it just isn't, it isn't really available. Oh yeah, definitely, man. Like my story is, is, uh, is not uncommon, right? That is a very, I would say national trend. Um, now it's going to depend on, depending on agency, right? Like how big that department is, but even some big departments just aren't, sending guys to training. So it really, it really, really is up to each individual to really like seek out that training and invest in themselves like I did. Uh, and then yeah. there's guys that are lucky that they can put in for a class and they always get approved. Right. So just depends on where you are and leadership, right. Leadership's important. Like, you know, your sergeant or your lieutenant, like if they're about training, like you're going to have a good time. And if they're not about training, then you're going to have to do, do your own thing. Like I did. Yeah, and that's that's the shitty part too, because you're you're completely at the mercy of your superior, basically, you know. And it's like any job, you know. I think people will will sometimes think about what you guys do in law enforcement differently than, like, I work in finance. Um, and there's obviously there's some there's some pretty obvious differences, right? <laughs> uh, but I mean, a, a bad supervisor is is a bad supervisor, you know, and it can have oh, yeah. the same kind of drastic impacts. Uh, the only difference being that I would say in law enforcement, it's a life or death 
that could be that impact versus, you know, for me, it's just, you know, a, a career advancement opportunity or something like that, that I just have to wait on or, or get away from or something like that. Um, cause it's, you know, I, we see so much of it on like TV, right? TV shows and the media and things where they, they kind of portray police officers as a certain way. Um, and it sucks because we've ended up where we're at today in, you know, what well, mid 2023, right? Defund the police, everything. Um, yeah. while also screaming for, well, why don't you have, uh, better training for less lethal options? Why did you have to shoot the guy? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you? And it's like, well, you do realize that you realize training costs money, right? Like when you go you, as a teacher, you have an in-service day, you're paid while you're there. Like I work in, in, uh, finance. When I went to go get licensing and things like that, they paid for it. Uh, the money has to come from somewhere. So, uh, it's, it's one of those things that just, I, I feel incredibly bad for the guys and, and, and ladies that are out there, you know, grinding away in law enforcement right now, still trying to, to do the job, but do it like better, you know, to solve some of those issues that people, you know, talk about and everything. And it's like, pay for it out of pocket. Right. And it's not cheap to your point, your story, right. You know, Haley strategic classes, not, I don't even know what they're at now, but yeah, I don't I, either. Like a couple of years ago, they were not cheap. Yeah. I think I, man, I don't remember. It's been so long, but I think it was like at least 800 at the time. I don't know what it is now for a three day class. Right. Um, plus the cost yeah, of ammo. Yeah. The ammo, I think it was 2000 rounds. Right. And then the travel, the hotel. So, like on most average, if it's not a local class, you're probably going to spend at least 2K, right, for the whole entire oh, yeah. class. Like, so your your fee, your ammo, your hotel, gas, food, you know, more or less, right? Generally, more or less is kind of what you pay. Well, and especially today, you know, uh, prices oh, yeah. on were through the freaking roof. So if you don't have <clears throat> some kind of discount or, or something, like, it could probably even be, you know, easily, you know, more than that. Um, it's it's steep, man. It sucks. And, and then that's a tough part. You know, there needs to be better training. I think with the, the number of people I've talked to, the things that I've heard about and you read online and everything, there's so many issues, right. That can be prevented with better training. And I don't even mean loss of life. Obviously I think that's probably at the top of the list, right? Everybody want, you want everybody to go home, you know, civilians, uh, law enforcement, like any interaction, want we want a positive uh resolution and outcome to it and to learn how to do that right there just needs to be more information and it it's you know i feel like it's the same conversation we have with the military right and i never served um but it takes a while for these changes to kind of come into these departments and agencies um especially and it feels like you know the smaller the agency or smaller the department it, that almost makes it worse, uh, for, at least from what I've, from what I've heard and from what I've encountered, um, just to, to accept those new ways of doing things or, or new ideas, right? And I know that's one of the things that uh, that will at Centrifuge is big about is is data backed, um, yep. training and things. And hey, I know we said it was this for years and years. Here's what the data shows us, you know. Uh, and that's something, is that something that I believe it is, but is that something that you've taken, you know, to heart and put into your training as well? Oh yeah, definitely. Right. So even before I joined Centrifuge, I was kind of a, a route that I was going down and then obviously, you know, had mentorship from 
uh, from the guys there. So it's, it's something that I still uh, use and instill in my classes to really show like, why are we doing this in this class, right? It's not just because I said so, because I want to do it because it's cool or we're just burning calories to burn calories. Like if we're doing something for a reason, like it's a specific reason, right? So I'm not just going to make you burn calories for no reason. So the data really helps to drive training and at least gives us a a roadmap of what we should prioritize versus just like, hey, what has been the norm in a law enforcement training? Like, hey, what are we going to work on an in-service or training? Like, I don't know. Let's just pick something out of the hat, right? So at least the data helps us to drive training versus just picking something out of a hat and just like, hey, we'll work on injured shooter this month. And hey, we'll work on one reload one this month or whatever yeah. that may be, right? Like, you know what I mean? So yeah, I'm a big fan of data. Well, and that was... in. I mean, it makes sense, but I know the first time I had ever really even heard or, or, or put those two concepts together, right? As somebody who was like new to the community and and walking into learning about training and things and seeing, like I said, like the video that you did with Triarch or even Will's video and seeing you guys talk about things like vehicle combatives and the, when you start hearing and, and reading the numbers behind the number of incidences that are involved, you know, in a vehicle and it's like, well, oh, okay, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense now that you say it out loud. But like, I don't, I know I have friends that are in law enforcement that I grew up with. I have obviously had guests on and it still remains, it's like this mystery that it's not addressed in your standard like police academy training. Um, and I, so when you guys address that, because I know that's something that uh, that you work on. What are some of the things, and I don't know if some things you can't share with us, I don't know, but uh, interested to hear what kind of, what are some of the things that you're running into that are like misconceptions that people just, they just don't understand how things change when you're sitting in a car versus standing in front of somebody. Uh, so like the, the biggest things is uh, one, if you're standing, then you're, you have the most mobility and the most vision, right? When you're yeah. sitting down inside a vehicle, right? You have way less vision. And obviously you're not very mobile at all, right? So two uh, two big things that you need in any type of fighting endeavor is mobility and vision, right? So once we start to take those things away, the likelihood of our chances of winning, right, uh, decrease, right? So the biggest thing about like, as far as interior vehicle work, like if I don't have to fight inside the car, then let's not, Let, let's get out for sure. Let's bail out, let's drive away, let's put in reverse, do whatever we need to. Uh, but there are some times where those just aren't options uh, so we have to show guys simple options to uh, to work around that problem. So like, hey, like how do we fight inside the car? Do we need a port? Right? Can we shoot through the left or the right side angles of the windows? Because once I start once I start to try to port through a window, right, I have to somewhat account for that deviation. But there's no way to really account for that other than porting through the window, right? Yeah. But then nobody's nobody's gonna really stand there and allow you to port through them. So that's a moving target. So porting becomes very difficult, right? Um, so it's uh it's not a place we want to be in but sometimes that's the only option available so we show guys like hey this is an option right work through it and then get out as fast as you can for sure well and even just addressing one of the things i didn't realize uh is that because you see it in movies like uh like Die Hard and stuff, right? Or any movie, really, that was basically in the 80s, right? Cop cars come <laughs> sliding up to whatever's happening. Everyone takes a freaking takes cover behind the door of the car. And those are actually like, I thought, like, yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, that's it's a metal door. It'll stop bullets. And it's like, this is not true. There's just, they don't totally stop not true. Shit. 
Yeah. And I was like, wait a minute. So everything that I've watched for the last 20 years is a complete lie. I had no idea uh, until I started seeing some of the stuff you guys were working on. Like there's that hard lie to me. Yeah. Bruce Willis, you motherfucker, you lied to me. Um, Yeah. I mean, so when we talk about that stuff, like, and that's so, and that's stuff that is taught to civilians as well, right? Those are those classes open to civilians. Oh yeah. There's open Roman classes for sure. Yeah. So there's some that are only only, and that just depends on generally like the host. Right. And then there's also open Roman classes that anybody can go to. Yeah. No. And and the only reason I ask is because it's like, you know, when we start now that we're, we're post um, pandemic, post lockdowns, people are actually like going back to the offices and things granted probably less than uh, we used to, but you start doing the math and like how much time in a day you spend in your vehicle. Like, it starts to make a lot more sense being able to understand your environment. And uh, before, I think that's probably it's to me, it's one of those things that a lot of people looked at, I think, until well, why would you need to learn how to shoot while, you know, from a car or around a vehicle? Um, and then when you start explaining it and looking at the environmental demands that are created in, in that instance, like you said, like people are going to move, nobody just stands still. You have to kind of understand, like it's the m- most affordable piece of cover that you have to some extent anyways you have available so like why not understand where you're safe and where you're not you know staying behind the car door is not going to help you um you know so where i mean and that stuff you guys got pretty in depth with with the centrifuge uh teaching right i mean um i had never even thought about most of it like obviously the engine block but then things like the the axle or the pillars um i would never have thought that that would have been a place that actually provides a lot of ballistic cover yeah there's a pretty good amount of places of cover on a vehicle it depends on the size of the vehicle also depends on the like the make and model like the year right like a like a 1980s is going to perform way less compared to a 2020 right just because of standards so when Wait, you look really? at, i would have thought yeah. it's the other way around no i mean that's like so you know going through the academy we didn't do any vehicle training uh, that I remember of. If we did, it was probably just traffic stops and maybe a very traditional felony stop, right? So like, hey, the legacy approach is there's only two points of curve in a car. That was generally the engine block or that was the uh, the wheel wheel assembly, right? Other than that, yeah. there's no other... There's no other points of cover. If you get in a gunfight around a car, like don't like go somewhere else. The problem is like, especially for my region, my area, if I'm doing traffic right out on the highway, like that's my only piece of cover concealment, whatever you want to call it. Right. So like, where am I going to run to like in the middle of this highway in the field? Like where, 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 where am I going to go to? Right. So I'm going to use something versus air. Uh, but as you start to look at through the data, as you start to look through, uh, you know, you shoot tons of vehicles, the ballistic labs, the, the ballistic demos are, as we say, or as I say, is boringly like super boringly consistent. Right. Uh, because I see it over and over and over, right? Guys are like, yeah. hey, man, like it's it's going to penetrate through this pillar or this pillar. And I'm like, all right, let's put 20 bucks on it, right? So <laughs> um, the uh, the standards are are a big thing. So like I said, a, you know, 2020 is going to perform way better than a 1980s because of the the technology, the advancement of the materials and standards and so forth, right? Uh, when you look at uh, companies, they want to sell vehicles, right? And they want to protect the occupants. So they're going to try mm-hmm. to increase increase the crash safety rating as much as they can. Okay. I mean, that, yeah. that makes sense. Now that you say it like that, that makes sense. Yeah. But I was just thinking like older vehicles are usually like, I don't know. 
I was thinking heavier or like, yeah, uh, we went through, I know we went through a period there, probably the nineties where everything was like a plastic car, you know, like an old Saturn that was yeah. everything on the thing was plastic. I hated that fucking thing, but, uh, no, I mean, that makes sense, you know, and because they're built better for crash rating than that does provide some better ballistic, uh, protection, even if that wasn't what they intended it for. Right. Yeah. Um, if, if you look at a vehicle, what is it designed to do? Right. Two things generally to get you from point A to point B and right. to protect and to protect the occupants. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So when you look at like a head on collision or a side collision, I want you to think of a round, right? So a projectile 940, whatever that is. I want you to think of that as a mini crash hitting the vehicle. So that round is, let's say, hits the A pillar, right? Those pillars are designed to absorb kinetic energy, right? Massive amounts of kinetic energy, right? From a yeah. From a crash, right? When you look at a round hitting that, that is kinetic energy hitting the pillars, right? There's just not enough mass behind those rounds to penetrate through one or two pillars. Now it'll happen for sure, like on a two, two, three, right? That'll penetrate through at least one pillar, um, depending on the load, green tip, et cetera. But generally we don't see it penetrate through two or more pillars. So do you now in your I guess, uh, I don't know, in research or in, I guess, stories or even personal experience, I suppose, it, it, I mean, not that it, it validates any kind of argument or anything, but do you guys usually or have you heard of any stories where that's actually a scenario? I, I feel like when you see a lot of these videos on like traffic stops and things like that, it's usually handgun rounds. Um, I, w- I honestly, you brought up 223, like I hadn't even thought about that. My thought was completely just at, you know, your main three handgun calibers, 940, 45. Yeah, no. So, like, yeah, rifle stuff does happen, but that's the that's the exception, right? Where guys stateside are getting uh, in more gunfights with guys with handguns, right? So, yeah. that's a big majority of, I would say, gunfights uh, stateside law enforcement. Yeah, and it's again, and that doesn't validate like anything. You know, that's not to say that like we shouldn't prepare for what a rifle can do. Um, oh, no, by yeah. any means. Yeah, I because I mean, I always like to call that out because I'm, I'm I know there's there's some people that they hear some of the stuff they say on the pod and they'll like send me a message like, well, actually, you know, that some people <laughs> do. I'm like, yes, yes, I do. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, so I've gotten really good at, at, at calling myself for it when I say stuff. But it, uh, yeah, I didn't even think about that. And then even, you know, green tip, like you said, could be even even further, uh, you know, a consideration. And so I guess. And and this is one of the things I really wanted to ask about because it's I find it interesting and it's probably the <laughs> the worst case scenario is like injured shooter, right? Um, like <laughs> obviously favorite. nobody wants to get shot and you like you like I'm fascinated by it. it. To me, it's maybe this isn't a good equivalent, but I think like I see the pictures and the videos. You guys like will like duct tape somebody's hand up or like make them hold a tennis ball while they're doing stuff. Yeah. And to me, it's like this goofy equivalent I always get in my mind is like that game on Christmas where you have to wear oven mitts and try to unwrap your gifts. You got to work like way, way, way harder to perform like base functions. Uh, so, uh, and again, that's probably a terrible uh, correlation to make, but no, man, my uh, parents said that to me like once or twice. And I was like, never again, <laughs> never again. <laughs> uh, so Ed, uh, like, can you like, I don't even know where to start with injured shooter. Is that something that is even taught at most uh, like academy levels? Like, do they even get into, you know, how you can even how you can work past some of those things? 
uh, if if it is, it's very watered down. And that was that was my experience. It was just a very basic like uh, Saba class, self aid, buddy aid. Like here's a tourniquet, right? Um, open it up, right? This is the basics of a tourniquet. This is how we apply it, and then that that's really about it, right? So as far as like actually applying it intertutor with like support hand down, support arm down, or dominant hand or dominant arm down involving a handgun and a rifle in combination with med stuff. Like, no, that, that wasn't a thing at all for me, or at least my experience in my department. And again, it wasn't until I sought outside training, started like working on stuff on my own stuff that was happening, uh, uh, with other guys that I was working with and so forth. Right. So yeah, definitely injured shooters, not a thing like, it's probably changing now, um, you know, through time for sure, as mm -hmm. uh, as we offer courses and so forth. Uh, but injury shooter is like one of my favorite things to teach because it's a very seldom taught and a very uh, often neglected topic. Because guys are like, "How hard is that, bro? Like, just just put a tourniquet on, like, and you're fine." Like, no, there's a lot more mm -hmm. that goes into it than that. Yeah, I feel like there's probably yeah, I was gonna say a lot more. You know, I mean, because the the assumption that that's, I mean, it's just so short-sighted. Like, well, why are you putting a tourniquet on? Because I got shot. Okay, so if all you have to do is put on the tourniquet, what's the guy who shot you doing? I presume there's probably more happening that you could probably be worried about in that in that instance. Um, so for things like, what do you, so can you walk through some of the things that you guys do when you go through injured shooter? Do you, is it, is it, like handgun specific and then carbine specific, or is it all kind of baked into one because both are pretty common these days? Um, how do you guys kind of address that? Yeah, man. So it's pretty, so like, as far as like the injured shooter stuff, I know uh, there's a trend going on right now and there's a big tourniquet failure as I start to look at a lot of officer involved shooting videos and not that the tourniquet fails itself, but the way they're applying the tourniquet, it's either wrong, not tight enough, right? And that comes that comes down to training, in my opinion, right? The training that mm -hmm. I've experienced on, on the job, anytime we did tourniquet, tourniquet work, it was either with it, one, it was either with our real tourniquets, right? So instead of using trainers, that was an issue, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's bad, right? So guys were using their real tourniquets, and the problem with that is they didn't want to right apply an actual pressure on that tourniquet to save the tourniquet, so they would get a false rep as they would apply pressure to that. Or what was also happening is they didn't want to bruise their own uh, arms, their legs, or their partner's legs, right? So they were just half-assing the reps. So we saw guys, again, using real tourniquets, which if I'm going to train it, like I want to train it properly, okay? And then guys are just not uh, applying the amount of pressure that they need to save their arms and their legs from getting bruised. I think I have about like 10 videos of guys just not putting the tourniquet on right. Yeah, and I, I mean, I would say of anything that's probably the one thing where you're like, all right, man, you're just gonna have to suck it up. Like that's probably yep. going to suck for a second. Like you'll get over it. It'll be fine. It's just a bruise. Like you'll be fine. Like I've put tourniquets on myself before they're, I mean, it's not comfortable. Like I don't want to do it all the time, but it's not, it's not that it's bad. Yeah. Like if you're doing it right, it should be uncomfortable. Like I tell everybody in class, like, Hey, like if you walk out of these two days, you know, by the end of day one and you're pretty bruised up already, like you're doing mm -hmm. a good job. And by day two at the end of it, you're like pretty bruised up in your arms and legs, you know you're doing it right, right? If you're like, put a tourniquet on, you can barely move that arm, you can barely walk with, with the tourniquet on your leg, you're doing it right. If you're not and you can like run normally, you can get up normally, your arms or your legs aren't bruised, right? Like you're cheating yourself out of reps. 
Yeah, yeah, it's not. I mean, people forget like the whole purpose is to cut off circulation. So yeah, when you're practicing, yeah. like you should be expecting all of the symptoms that come with lack of circulation. And like, duh. Um, so and and that's just that's. I mean, obviously, probably the most important piece of it um, is getting that tourniquet on. You want to stop the blood loss, obviously, and and be able to manage your way through that. Um, and it's like, it's, it's not funny. I shouldn't say the, it's not funny, but it's just ironic that that's the part that people skip over when they look at training. Like, um, and it's funny cause I'm actually going to be part of an active shooter training, uh, tomorrow through work. Um, that's going to like a first aid training. <clears throat> the last time I took one, uh, we spent a whole bunch of time, uh, working with those stupid, uh, dummies on how to properly do CPR and stuff. Um, which is important. Which is important. Yeah, it is. Uh, but at the end of it, we got three minutes on tourniquet application. They didn't show anybody how to use a tourniquet. They, the lady talked about it. And then the entirety of it was, I could sum it up in like two sentences. It was, uh, tourniquets you can apply to, uh, stop bleeding. Uh, don't apply a tourniquet to the neck. I was like, oh yeah, no shit. Good stuff, ma'am. Thank you. Uh, go American Red Cross for amazing first aid training. Uh, great next uh it just it blows my mind when people they try to shortchange the th- the things that are literally the life-saving skills uh for reasons which i don't understand it's too much of a liability actually i think is what she said they don't want us uh, having you guys put tourniquets on each other because it's a liability issue uh, it could be liability or just their lack of knowledge behind the subject right uh but also i had no idea that we're not supposed to put tourniquets to the neck you know, yeah, like uh, it could cause a problem to the air, uh, airway or something. Yeah, that's that's the that's the after class special, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, I was like, you know, and because you know, I was I'm a shooter, and so is my wife, and we just happened to work at the same company at that time, and we look at each other and start laughing. We kind of got some weird looks from everybody else in the class, <laughs> like, guys, it's it's putting a knot around your throat. Like, just think about that for a second. Like, oh, ha, we get the joke. Like, yes, welcome to the conversation. Yeah. Good stuff. Safe. Safe word is pineapple 10 times. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> um, so and and so then what follows after that, usually in the injured uh, in the process of, of doing injured shooter work. Now, do you guys I, probably don't have them wear the tourniquets while they're going through the, the shooting drills and everything? Um, oh, yeah. But- so uh, like I'll, I'll give you kind of a breakdown of it. Right. So, yeah, uh, you know, like my my injured shooter class, which is called injured but not out. Right, that's a two-day class. Um, day one is handgun specific, and then day two is uh, rifle and handgun combined. Right, so it kind of builds you up uh, because mm-hmm. the we start with you know the I would say the easiest, which is handgun, and then we work up to the the harder mode a little bit, which is rifle and handgun. Um, and so that that class essentially covers the intruder principles. Right, it covers the 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 classroom, the data side of the house, and then it also covers the med workshop. Um, so about two hours of mid work. So that includes tourniquets, uh, whether support hand, support arm is down, dominant hand, dominant arm is down, chest seals, wound packing, uh, you know, the, the basic algorithm of, uh, from TEWC or TCCC, right? March, right. Just sticking to that. So very, very standardized, uh, break that hole down. Right. And so guys get a lot of time on the med workshops and then we combine that all with the injured shooter applications behind the gun. So meaning, Hey, if support hand goes down, how can I still support this gun as best as possible? Can I put some, uh, 
some mass on the side of the gun to help me have some counter pressure on it, right? Mm -hmm. um, or how do I use his hand to help me stabilize the gun during a reload or fix the gun? Uh, but how to also use the environment, right? So meaning a vehicle, like whatever we have at the class, but not just the class. So anything in real world, vehicle, wall, trees, uh, you know, concrete, bench, your holster, your plate carrier, whatever you have on you, right? So on the environment and then also your kit as well. Um, and then, you know, we cover all the malfunctions as well. So, you know, your, your typical fail to feed, fail to fire, fail to extract, et cetera. Um, and then, yeah, then they get through the drills of, you know, combining everything together with a med workshop and a live, live fire workshop. So, you know, targets, et cetera, applying a tourniquet, they keep the tourniquet on the whole entire drill. So it gives them a sense of actually having a full tourniquet on there. So by the end of the drill, like they're numb, their hand or arm is pretty, pretty numb, right? They can't, yeah. they can't even and feel it right so um and then day two uh, follows a similar format you know but it's uh, it's more rifle heavy so when you when you're going through these let me ask you this because uh, i mean unfortunately people i get it right we were talking about the cost of training and things earlier and i get it you're gonna try and save money where you can um <clears throat> when you're going through those injured shooter considerations and things where you have to manipulate the weapon off of like you were saying like your kit or body armor or a vehicle or a tree do you find that people uh regret some of their purchases when they start oh, yeah. things off of uh <laughs> you know, like crappy mounting plates for optics or like shitty holsters and belts and stuff yeah man real quick you'll find out like super quick uh so um let's see what have i seen yeah like you know your plates come off like the gen 1 mos systems from glock right were were horrible for injured shooter <laughs> they're um, terrible and probably not, just for, not just for industry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they're, they're terrible. Uh, and then optics as well. So I've I've had a Gen One RMR that survived eight years of everything, right? So that's still kicking. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's going well. It's it's falling apart. Like the <laughs> the button panels yeah. are exposed now, right? So it's it looks horrible, but it still works. Um, so RMRs do really well. Um, Hollow Sun uh, does well. Uh, SRO, I've seen a couple of those break, right? As guys rack off the optic. Um, and the same thing with the P2s, the acros, right? So those are a little inconsistent. Uh, I just picked really? up a P2 as well. Yeah. So it just depends, man. Like if you hit, if you rack them like a certain angle, you can break that glass. So the dot will still work, but the glass, will, uh, the front glass will be broken. There's going to be so many people that are upset to hear that Hollow Sun has less issues than, than Aimpoint when they listen to this. Yeah, I think uh the I think it's five oh nine T if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I just put uh, one on mine. I took my uh I had one of the auto adjusting RMRs. Like yeah. I bought it, I didn't know any better. Um and the first time I got out and started doing low light shooting, um, figured out very quickly that the regular X three hundred washes out that dot and the auto adjust oh, yeah. fast enough to catch up. Um and I was like, no, dude, I can't, I can't keep doing this. So I waited for a good sale and I picked up a 509 T uh, for 4th of July. Yeah. So you'll, you'll have good success with that. Right. So 509 T's are, are tanks. They do well. Uh, and then yeah, stay away. Obviously stay away from friggin' auto adjust, man. That's, that's a big thing for sure. Um, yeah, mistakes were made. Yeah. I, I'll accept that. <laughs> yeah, dude. And I think as far as equipment, that's kind of the biggest thing we see uh, is, optic choice and then mounting plate choice especially for injured shooter because when you're racking the optics off whatever that is you need to make sure that it's durable and then your zero is not going to shift etc 
Yeah, I mean, and you said it, the, those, uh, the Gen 1 MOS, uh, actually, honestly, I don't even know if there's more than, I didn't know there was more than one generation, um, but I don't, uh, anybody that, I tell them, buy the Glock MOS and then don't use the mounting plates, like go go to like forward controls or something and get a better mounting plate that like fills in the gaps around the optic and is going to last longer. Um, I think the system's great. I just think that their plates from the factory are horrifically bad. Um and no yeah. one should use them ever. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, I think I think there's a new gen. I could be wrong, but yeah, you definitely don't want to use the MOS for sure. No, I mean, I I would trust your opinion more than mine. I um I, I haven't really read into it that far. Uh, and, and so I'm also I just picked up a PDP, right? So I'm a, I've been playing around the PDP. So I'm curious to see how that does on the injured shooter because I have the Acro on there, and then obviously I'm just running the the Walther plate right now. I'm gonna pick up a, a different plate. But you know it, it has that gap, so we'll see how that does. Well, I, I've 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 heard a lot of good things uh, about the PDP. I know we had uh, Scott Jedlinski, uh, Modern Samurai, right? We had him on the pod a couple weeks ago, and I think I believe he that's what he runs. Um, yeah, has pretty good things to say about it. I've never shot one myself, but I I do see a lot of guys that are rocking those things. Um, honestly, if you just and that's one of the things I know everybody like gets into that and just because we're talking about it, right? People want to get all kinds of heartburn and stuff over what kind of what kind of pistol you should run. I mean, honestly, man, and just run what I you mean, want, man. Yeah. I mean, as long as it's like a one of the I guess good brands, like when people ask me, I'll as long I'll as it's not them, a SIG. Well, you see, <laughs> you know, my dad has been bugging me, like he wants the SIG because a buddy brought in just the grip chassis or whatever just the grip to uh work and he's like man that feels great i'm like yeah it feels great but they have some problems you know so when people ask yeah. me like you can go with sig i like glock smith and wesson is also good walther is fine if you can afford an hk like have at it i just tell people like avoid springfield ruger and taurus and you'd probably be fine yeah, just get you a good reliable gun, right? That's gonna last uh through training and then obviously not in training, like when you're carrying off duty, et cetera. I mean, me, I shot Glocks. I've been shooting Glock for eleven years straight. So I've only owned one gun, right? So I have a Glock seventeen and I've only used that gun for eleven years, right? So I have a lot of time on my Glock seventeen. I think I survived all kinds of things. Um and then obviously I have my duty gun was a Glock twenty two, uh, but we went to Gen five seventeen, so it's even better now. But yeah, man, I trained on one gun only, and so now I have at least a good foundation to move on to a different gun, right? So I'm going to try the PDB for a while. I like it. The recoil impulse is different. It feels a little bit snappier compared to my Glock. Um, mm-hmm. On the Glock, I feel like I can get up higher on the gun, right? Close I was just going to gonna say, the height over bore, yeah. Or, yeah, or so, bore axis, I'm sorry, yeah. Yeah, so it's different. Um, so I've only had maybe a month on the PDP. So I'm still, I'm still working through that, but I definitely like it um, for what it offers is straight out of have the you, box too as well. Have you run into a bunch of issues with the SIGs? Uh, no, I, I've never shot it just from what I hear and seen. Right. So yeah. Yeah. I know they had issues, uh, or at least the, uh, like their first gen when they rolled them out to the market, you know, the drop test issues and stuff they would go off when you dropped them. I was like, yeah, you know, not, uh, not not the best. I am kind of glad I didn't make the jump. You know, um, yeah. It just seems like something they do for their quality control and their like consumer testing. Uh, after you get a couple generations in, they're they're fine. I know a lot of people that love them, but I was, I'm always interested to hear when people have stories about like, yeah, don't don't use this brand because here's what I saw. You know, um, 
Ruger and, and Springfield, right? Uh, pins walking out and all kinds of dumb, just weird issues. But um, <clears throat> so with the injured shooter stuff, right? Working on the vehicle, kind of inevitably the the evolution there, at least in, in, in our discussion here, right? Is one, the third thing I think that you focus a lot on is like white light application or low light shooting techniques. And I remember vividly, I thought it was really cool when I saw one of the videos, I think it was Triarch, but you actually just took the slide straight off the pistol. So you didn't have to like do anything goofy or yeah. like worry about chamber flags or anything. And I was like, Oh, that's actually kind of a neat way to do that. You don't have to worry. You're not pointing a gun at anybody. Cause it's clearly disassembled. Um, is that something that you guys teach a lot of? Uh, cause it feels like, I mean, I think we still see some departments, at least here in, I'm in Michigan. We still have departments where they don't issue uh, weapon lights or don't allow weapon lights. And, you know, well, if you want, you carry a handheld or a mag light or something. Um, is that something you guys are doing a lot of or, or do more of? Is that something that's kind of gaining traction? Yeah, man. So uh, your your experience is like my experience as far as like departments not issuing weapon lights. That is still a very common thing. Uh, not so much on the handgun anymore. Uh, now it's it's changing there. But I know some departments on on the rifle aspect don't allow weapon lights. Now it just depends, man. Like where that department is. Yeah. Um, you know, my department was like that for a while. I was like, hey, no weapon lights on the handgun or the rifle, uh, because I don't know who at the time. Somebody, right? Not just not just like my department. There's there's a lot of departments like this. Like somebody's just doing something dumb that they shouldn't be doing, like conducting a traffic stop with their weapon light because their, oh, no. their, hand, their handheld light like wasn't working or maybe they're doing traffic control, like waving people to go left or right with a gun or just something dumb, right? So, or the worst case is somebody uh, shoots somebody who doesn't deserve to be shot, right? So an ND, negligent discharge, mm-hmm. uh, because they are because they were trying to activate their weapon light, uh, but under stress, they slipped, right? And then caused an ND. And then the department was like, nope, Right, because of liability, et cetera. Like everybody's getting canned, so nobody can have a Wolfman light unless they were a specialized unit, like SWAT or whatever. That's that. So, I mean, that you saying that makes complete sense. Like it doesn't necessarily surprise me, but that's so incredibly short sighted. Um, yeah, and awful. Uh, I, I mean. Okay, if you if it's like a like uh, a budgetary concern, I get it. You know, X three hundreds are they're not they're not cheap, right? Or, or a TLR one Streamlight makes a good light, you know. Fine, you know, and then holsters, like I get it. There's some costs associated there, but on your long guns, I would think uh, more than anything, that's where you would want to have a white light, especially given that that can reach out further. It's already enough of an issue with people having. Ident- you know, AR stands for assault rifle, you know, and all this goofy shit that we already have to deal with. I would have thought that of all places, they would just make it mandatory to have a white light on your rifle. Unfortunately, man, that's not the case. Um, you know, I, at least that wasn't my experience, you know, going through the early years through my career. It's it's changed now. You know, it takes either, you know, somebody in the department to to do that change, like, you know, to revamp programs and like, Hey, we need, we need, we need this because of liability concerns, safety issues, you know, Hey, when's the last time our de- department has done any type of low light training? Um, you know, some departments hit it every year. Some departments, uh, don't hit it every year, maybe every two years or not at all. Right. So it just depends where you are. Um, but I think it's slowly changing finally. 
Well, and you're so likely to come across, I mean, bad shit happening. Like I think it was a T-Rex arms video a couple of years, like bad people do shit at night. Like you need to have a, yeah, a white crime opportunity. Yeah, exactly. So like, I mean, you're most officers, I think are required to carry a handheld light. Why? I, I just, I don't, I don't, I don't see the correlation between why you wouldn't want to have one attached to the firearm. Um, because then by association, you can kind of like infer from that, like, well, if we don't have them carrying a white light on their, on their, their firearms, then they're not being trained on how to use the firearm with the white light. Or if they are, I assume it's probably very limited and it's just not, I mean, there's a reason why weapon mounted lights are kind of like the standard in most places or in a lot of places, right? Because it just it is a more effective way of employing the platform. Um, is that when you guys get into like low light and those conversations, those kinds of discussions and classes and things, uh, I mean, truthfully, are, are you guys see, are you, do you see a lack of understanding on how to be effective with the light, you know, angles and positioning and things like that? Yeah, uh, I do. That's a very common thing. Uh, so when you look at the handheld light applications, brother, they uh, they rely on a lot of like hand-eye coordination, right? So if you're not like a, uh, let's say you didn't play a lot of sports when you're younger, right? You didn't throw a lot of baseball, football, like et cetera, right? That's um, me. Yep. <laughs> it, right. So for some guys, that's a little harder. Um, or let's say you don't play any type of like first-person shooters. You're not you're not on the computer quite a bit, where you do a lot of hand-eye coordination, right? Um, guys who don't have as much time doing those things, uh, you know, have a little bit of a more of a struggle compared to guys that that you know play games on the computer, sports, etc. Right. So I played baseball in my life, so hand-eye coordination came pretty easy as I you know did more and more of that. Um, so the biggest thing for the handheld light portion is guys will try to present the light of where they're looking, but generally what we'll see is that light will be like up to the sky or off to the left or to the right of the target. So not where it needs to be. And like, they're kind of like doing an SOS up to the sky. Like, like here's here, here I am playing, like you can land here. Right. Um, right so that's right. the biggest thing with the handheld stuff. Right? So I'm like, Hey, all the stuff you can dry fire. Right. So it doesn't need to be live fire. You can, you can be at home, right? Put your target on the wall, whatever you want to do, and just practice the handheld light techniques we show, right? So we, we keep it pretty simple. I show three in class. There's more than that, uh, but I like to show three. I like to try to keep it uh, the list of options very small, right? So under stress, when guys need an option, they can pick from one, two, or three versus a full list of like 10 different techniques, right? Like yeah. I always like tell guys in class, like, yeah, you, you got a cheesecake factory. There's like five pages of, of food, right? It takes you forever to decide what to eat. But if there was a yeah. small list of options, you'd be like, hey, I want that. And that's it. Right. Just, I mean, because in that moment, you're going to not want to have to think through all of it. You just want to know just just speed. Yeah. So, I, and that's, and I, and I assume that's uh, situationally dependent. I know I've seen some stuff from a, a lot of different instructors, honestly. I know some guys talk a lot about the, um, I think it's called a Harry's grip. Is that the one where you like cross your hands over or something with the handgun and the handheld? Uh, and yeah, I know yeah, stuff yeah. like along the jawline or like up in the air, far away from you. And guys are like, Oh, if you, if you put the light up over here, they'll think that they won't know exactly where you're at. And like, it's your arm, man. Like, it's not that big of a deal. Like maybe, I, I, I don't know. I just, when I hear that, like my, my arm's not eight feet long, I'm not going to 
just, I'm not going to confuse anyone, but I'm sh- I'm assuming there's probably different circumstances for each application. Yeah, it really comes down to like uh, what your what your what your environment is and what you're doing with uh, you know what you're doing behind this certain application. So compared to let's say if I'm doing CQB in a structure, uh, fighting around vehicles uh, in a, in a car, or just fighting in the open air engagement, like the the handheld light techniques we use are going to vary. Uh, but let's apply it to a car real quick. So since we talked about cars earlier, um, mm-hmm. applying around a car, you'll see guys flow between three handheld light positions. I show so I show uh, FBI position. I'll show either the uh, the chin index, which you mentioned earlier, right? So I'll slave it yeah. to the chin. Or a tempo index, so it's kind of a hybrid between the chin index, right? And then I'll show the Harry's position, as you mentioned, right? So I'll show those three, and that's it. And you'll find that guys will flow from those three, right, very well, because depending on the angle of what they're conforming to, the height of a car, you know, if they're squatting, kneeling, uh, if they're if they're standing, if they're lying down, that handheld light technique is really gonna depend on like again how they're conforming to that cover right so they can't just pick let's say fbi and then use it the whole entire time because it's not going to work right so you have to yeah. really maneuver that light above around under right now would you would you say that the because the light is separated from the firearm is that in your opinion is that like more advantageous with a handheld than a weapon light um or is it really you know i mean shot accountability being a primary consideration, right? Is the weapon light still the preferred method, you think? So I, uh, what you'll find is a lot of guys come to class, um, either they've had some time on the handheld light or never had time on the handheld light and just did nothing but weapon on a light. Oh, but okay. by the day two or day three of the class, you'll find that most guys are like, hey, like I really enjoyed my handheld light and they kind of favor the handheld light more because you can do so much more with it, right? And what I tell guys in classes uh, is, hey, think of the Wolf Monolite as offensive in nature, right? So meaning a gun is warranted to be out, so I'm actively searching for someone, right? Um, I'm holding down somebody, et cetera. A handheld light is defensive in nature, right? Meaning the gun can be warranted, and the gun can be out if warranted, but it's not always a... The gun doesn't always need to be out. Maybe I'm just navigating. I'm looking for something, someone. I'm doing admin stuff, right? I'm doing a post-engagement. I'm looking left to right to see where my partners are, etc. Right? So the... Again, the Wolf Model Light is very offensive in nature compared to the handheld light, which is defensive in nature, meaning I can use that however I want to without flagging anybody Right, that doesn't obviously deserve to be flagged. Um, yeah, if I had if I had to pick, I'd always choose a handle light over a weapon on a light. Yeah, just I think the flexibility is yeah, like you said, the, in the defensive settings. But I mean, for a lot of people, especially on the civilian side of things, where you're a concealed carrier, and in in my opinion, you, it's always going to be a defensive posture. Right, that's that's the whole thing as being a civilian is to protect yourself, yeah. not to be an aggressor. Um, and I, and I love that cause I get those questions all the time from people and they're like, Oh, well, why don't you just carry, you know, like one of those little tiny pocket lights or, um, I'll get like friends and family and they'll like, cause I carry, uh, with a, um, one of the switchbacks, the theorem, uh, like finger ring or whatever. And people are like, what oh, the yeah. hell is that? Are you carrying a can of mace in your pocket? I'm like, no, it's a, it's a flashlight. Like, why do you need all that on there? I'm like, well, because I use it with a gun. 
and then everyone freaks out. I'm like, don't get your panties in a wad. Like not all the time. Like it's just, it's convenient. There's a clip on it and I can hold on to it with one finger. Um, those things to me, honestly, if are great. Um, and I think everybody should use one or some kind of retention, either like the rubber ring or tie some string to it or something. Um, I think those are amazing. Uh, but that's just, I've, I've found that very easy and convenient when you're talking about a handheld light, trying to, you know, work a firearm. Um, oh, yeah, one I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more. So I, I, I love those things, right? I think of the, of the theorem as a, as essentially as a sling for my finger, right? Um, so yeah. you don't have to use a theorem. Um, you can obviously, like you said, you can, you can make your own with a lanyard with a ring, etc. cetera. Uh, now I'm running a model light plhv2 so i can't really use the theorem as it was designed to because the tail cap is recessed so it's protected to prevent mm-hmm. it from doing a you know accidental uh white white light nd um but what i use it for the most is anytime i'm reloading or doing anything as far as fixing the gun something's going on like i just let it hang on my finger i really don't flip it out of the way i just let it hang right so that way i'm not worried about having to hold it and then do what i need to and then get it back to the light so uh, i really uh, that- like those things a lot that makes me happy because uh, I'm the same way. Yeah. I have tried yeah. for so long to be consistent with that, with the activation and everything. And typically all I get is a bunch of N- like white light ND. Like I just, and I carry with like a yeah. crappy little uh, streamlight polytech, you know, like 600 lumens, nothing crazy. Um, and that doesn't have, that doesn't have a recessed button or anything. I'm like, this should be simple, but it just, I struggle with it. Um, I don't know if there's any real fix for that, uh, you know, and I'll continue to practice with it. But uh, even with that, I'll say that like slight downside to it still, like you said, like it's incredible for being able to retain the light with off finger. So you can do things like reloads or, um, you know, working on the gun, racking the slide, administrative stuff, putting on a tourniquet. I mean, it could be anything, right? Um, still, yeah. in my mind, essential equipment if you're carrying a, a handheld light. For sure. Um I probably shouldn't say that because they're they're kind of one of my sponsors, but I still I still love them. I still use them for for that. Um, but uh, as far as the the actual technique is, uh, when you look at data and then when you look at um, teaching tactics or technique, like hey, is what we're teaching is that behavior compliant? And what I mean is, anytime you start to look at mass amounts of data, uh, which I do, I don't have any videos of guys. Um, like going from a, let's say from an FBI position and then let's say flipping the light and then going to how the, essentially the theorem is, is mounting, right? So how you mm-hmm. activate or essentially like a syringe grip. I don't see anybody doing that under opposition. You with me yeah. so far? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So of the three handheld light techniques I show, we keep it behavior compliant. So under stress, right, I never have to change my hand position because under stress, I'm generally not going to do that. It's a thing called interlimb coordination, right? Um, and what that simply means is under stress or opposition, whatever I'm hold on to, I'm going to clinch onto. So this is why you see uh, through a lot of videos of guys holding onto clipboards, tasers, pins in their hands pocketbooks, et cetera, under some type of starter response, they're like, oh shit, they clinch on their hands. So whatever I start with, I generally end with. So from the handheld like techniques that I show from an FBI to a chin or to a temple or to a Harry's, right? You never ever have to change the way you, how you hold the light. 
it stays consistent. I never have to flip it. I never have to adjust my hand in any weird way, right? So it's very behavior compliant. If that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, no, that 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 makes a ton of sense, and it's it, it's funny because you see that that to me is a better way of explaining what everyone else says as under stress you lose your fine motor skills. It's like okay, no, you don't because working working a trigger is a fine motor skill, right? Like, well, but every, I mean, everyone says it. Fine motor skill. Yeah, everyone says it though because they've heard it for what do you call it? Like ten, twenty years. Like yeah. one guy said it. Now everybody keeps saying it. And it's like, oh, you shouldn't. You know, you'll never use that theorem ring or whatever because you know whatever fine motor skills. And it's like, mm, are you, do you really lose all of them, or are there certain things that the body does that you're just making a blanket statement? Like you're gonna lose all fine motor skills. Like, I think yeah. a further understanding of what's going to happen is really beneficial, um, especially if you're, you know, carrying a gun when you leave the house, whether you're a copper or otherwise, like that's the kind of stuff I find valuable to understand. You know, uh, what is it called again? It's called interlimb coordination. Interlimb coordination. Yeah, that's I'm actually I'm probably going to look into that after we're done, because I find that interesting that the, I mean, it's. Yeah. Well, because you do, you see body cam footage and stuff of cops and they hold their ticket book and then they're sitting there blasting one-handed oh, yeah. with their lock or whatever. And it's like, dude, just drop the stupid ticket book. Like, get a second hand on that thing. Uh, but it makes sense. You know, it's just, it's one of those yeah. reactionary things. And eventually they will, but it takes time, right? Uh, so it'll take time for them to be like, hey, my brain's like, hey, I need to let go of what I'm holding to get two hands on the gun or to transition to a weapon mono light or whatever, whatever the case may be. Right. But it takes time. Um, so, yeah. Well, I mean, and I guess kind of in, in connection to that thought, like one of the questions I actually had about the low light applications, because I've had this, I'll say, I guess I'll say argument, but I've had this discussion with friends and stuff a bunch. And when we were training on the range, it was a, it was a big touching or touchy subject was uh, like reloads, you know? So for like a weapon mounted light, what do you teach for reloads? Do you leave the light on because, hey, I'm just started shooting everybody. They know where I'm at already or turn the light off because it offers at least some amount of concealment and uncertainty as to if you may have moved or not. Uh, so same thing uh, going on with like dropping the handheld light or switching how I hold the light. Uh, the same the same concept or theory when you look at light on light off during reloads or malfunctions or so forth um i maybe have maybe have one uh if if if, if i do of guys turning their light on light off during an engagement right the brain is going to prioritize keeping you alive okay so call it task versus priority in the moment right and that and that shooting whatever it is okay um what is a priority is fixing the gun the priority or is turning the light on and off a priority? What do you think? Oh, damn it. I mean, I would say fixing the gun should be the priority. Yeah. Getting it back up and running. Right. Because what, what solves the problem at the end of the day? Does the gun or does the light solve the problem? It's the gun. Yeah. The gun. The, the light would obviously help you ID the problem, but I've never seen a light kill anybody. Right? Unless you have a lightsaber. Like, I don't have one yet. I need one. Right. So, right. Um, right. But I've never seen a light kill anybody. Okay. So. I need to fix the gun up first. I can prioritize the gun. Then I can worry about everything else after that. Okay. So I'm a big fan of prioritizing the gun versus light on light off. Now there's times to do that for sure. Right. Uh, but when you look at most state side law enforcement engagements, 
they're generally not prolonged gunfights and generally we're not in complete dark areas like complete like scotopic like full darkness areas and then i'm not worried about getting essentially ambushed by like two three or multiple people right so again just looking at stateside law enforcement engagements compared to overseas that's a totally different thing like hey white white light uh nds ad's like our thing i definitely probably more uh more on the side of light on light off in a in a setting that way uh but when you look at just the behavior the human behavior behind it guys are prioritizing fixing the gun and they don't even worry about the light on light off they're like hey that's that's not even a thought for them Well, see, I don't like that because uh, I was on the other side of that argument. So that means I'm wrong. <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> not, but, not but that you're wrong, right? And, yeah, not that you're wrong. I mean, that's how I was trained to. Hey, light, light on, off. Like if you're moving, off, etc. Yeah, yeah, like if I'm gonna if I'm gonna move, navigate, I'm not gonna like walk around with my light on for sure, right? Uh, unless I need it, right? Unless I need that light to help me navigate so I don't fall on something, someone, fall down something, etc. I'm going to keep that light on. Um, but dude, when it's time to like gunfight, like I'm going to prioritize the gun versus like, hey, turn the light on, turn the light off. Here's the thing. Bad guys already know where we are. Either they shot at us first or we, we kind of went head to head. They generally just shoot in our direction. They don't care, right? So they don't play by the same rules that we do. All right, so meaning like if I turn the light on, right, and then I turn it off, bad guy's not going to be like, oh, shit, he turned his light off. Like, I can't <laughs> shoot at him now. No, right? That's not how it works. It's like uh, so, uh, Wayne's World, right? Car and game on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's it, that's that's how where I stand on that, at least. No, it makes sense. Uh, and it's, just, it's one of those things, like, ultimately, it probably is a dumb thing to argue about, but it's one of those things out on the range with your buddies, like, hey man we shoot it this way yeah no, we shoot it this way and here's why and at the end of the day you're like fine but i still don't agree with you uh so damn yeah because i was i was i was all about it i'm like maybe yeah. i shut the light off you have to <laughs> so and uh, you know it just depends on context application and where you really find that out um is through force on force right so that's the closest thing we can get to actual like uh gunfighting so when i have guys come to class Uh, and, you know, and they're like, yeah, man, like I'm, I'm cool with what you're showing, but I'm still going to prioritize turning the light off, et cetera. I'm like, all right, cool. Not a problem. Right. Put them through force on force. Guess what they don't do. Turn the light off. They don't turn the light off. They're yeah. just worried about making sure they don't get hit by those bees. Yeah. I've heard, I've never been through force on force, uh, but I've heard horror stories, uh, from friends that have done it, um, in the military and in law enforcement, um, I mean, they've all said it is the best way to learn because you have that like pain that reinforces when you do something oh, wrong. Yeah. Um, but just the amount of stories, it's like yeah, after the first run through, like everybody just starts shooting each other in the junk, and it's just a really, really painful learning experience on you know why you never want to get shot. Like, all right, yeah, no, that, that's fair. I, I get that. That sucks. He's like, yeah, I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah, dude, I get it. I get it. But. I, yeah, I say so like force on forces. It's a great equalizer, right? So that's where you test and validate uh, tactics and techniques. So, uh, like like I like to say, if you're like if you're not testing and evaluating your tactics, techniques, etc., like then you're just bluffing, right? You're just you're just bluffing. Uh, so we have to really see does it work opposed or does it not. And is that? I mean, do you see a lot of departments moving to force on force, or is that still? Because it, it feels like because it's expensive, you know, like UTMs and it's yeah. like they're, they're really expensive as bad as normal ammo is. That's worse. 
do you see many, you know, departments making that step or is it still kind of like a, you want it, you kind of do it on your own thing? Yeah, like if you want to get to do it on your own, uh, that's not easy to like acquire the UTM guns and bolts um, mm -hmm. and the ammo. Like the ammo is like for a case of 900, you're paying like $900. It's pretty much a dollar around, right? So it's it's expensive. So expensive. Yeah. Um, so when you look at that, like departments, some departments are about it, but most departments are like, like now, like maybe we'll do it once a year, if that, um, and then maybe you just get a box, right? So you only get 50 rounds for whatever training cycle you're doing. And then, then that's it, it right? Because yeah, like it depends how big the department is, right? So, you know, a 300 man department compared to a 50 man department, you know, budget and, and so forth, logistics have, have, a, have a play. Um, you know, you see guys, you see guys doing it, but not as much as you like to for sure. Yeah, it's just, it, it's cost prohibitive. I get it. Um, it sucks that there's not a better, a better way of, of tackling that, that issue, you know? Um, but it's also kind of the same thing with like, uh, like combatives, you know, hand to hand stuff and everything. It, uh, I didn't, I have a buddy who's a, a cop here locally. And when he told me like the amount of time he gets to put in per year, which I think is like, I don't know. Uh, it's less than like a, a one work week, you know, for the entire year. I think he said it's like 28 hours or something of any kind of combatives training that he gets. Um, but he's out there obviously on the street every single freaking day. It's like, they don't teach you that they don't go through that. He's like, well, not really. I mean, you're kind of on your own to go ahead and, and seek out when you have the time and the money additional training through, you know, jujitsu or something like that. Um, and then, He's actually yeah. pretty lucky. They they do approve quite a bit of training um, through his department. Uh, but it's still, when you look at like the number of hours you're out there doing the job versus the number of hours you get for training, it's just, I am blown away by how little uh, time you're, is spent giving you information on a year-to-year -year basis. It's crazy. Yeah, man, that's pretty normal. That's on, that's on a lot of subjects, not just DT. So, you know, for me, that was uh, once a year for eight hours, right? Eight hours once a year of a whatever dt they're showing us and that wasn't really tested under actual opposition if that makes sense right like it's just everything works when there's compliance right so hey only go 50 percent, right uh so nobody yeah. gets hurt etc right so you're not really you're not really testing stuff right compared to like how it, how it would be on the street um you know same thing applies for low light some guys get eight hours some guys get four hours some guys get nothing same thing with farms training right eight hours a year. Yeah. And that's generally like a combination of a qualification slash training, right? So we spend four hours qualifying everybody and then we get four hours of like a, a workup, right? So yeah, man, unfortunately and that's, by, that's norm. And by comparison, like when you guys do, when you do like your low light class, how long does that usually last hours wise? Uh, so I have a two day or three day format. So it just depends on which one, but generally, you know, it's, that's two days, right. Or three day format. And so, uh, that's anywhere from like 16 hours to 24 hours or longer, right. Somewhere around there. Just, I, I, I hope maybe through just exposure or time that some departments start to realize that, like, look, I mean, the companies that, and, and I don't know if you are, you know, I'm sure you probably are. You probably do work with law enforcement agencies and, and things and, when you when you look at it and say, hey, the guys that were the guys we're paying to bring in here, 
do this for 16 to 24 hours versus the eight that we give per annum. Do we think would common sense tell us we're not giving our people enough time? And I mean, I just hope that that actually spurs some thought and some change in the way things are happening with with how we handle, you know, law enforcement training, um, especially now where it seems like, you know, we people don't want to be police officers right now because of all the just awful shit you have to live through. Um, and that has to get better, obviously. And that's yeah. I think better training is like top three on how you start to rectify that issue. It, it, or it should be anyway. So, I, yeah, you know, hell, hell, I don't even want to be a cop right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I it's it's rough. I had a buddy who was six years, I think he was a state trooper here in Michigan, and he left to go join a federal agency. He just he got to the point where he's like, I love what I do. But yeah, eventually they put you in it, they back you in enough, not really corners, but you know, like they, they paint you paint you within, you know, so many lines on what you can and can't do and stuff. It just gets to the point where it's just, it's not what it should be. And you know, it's not and you can only live with it for so long. So um, luckily for him, he made the move to the, one of the three letter boys and, uh, he's loving life, uh, you know, uh, getting to learn things a different way, do things a different way. Uh, he, it was just hilarious. He, he called me and he's like, man, I got to shoot with a red dot on my pistol for the first time. I was like, yeah, dude, welcome to the conversation. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty life-changing, isn't it? It's like, oh, you wouldn't I believe my first time. I was like, yeah, actually, I would, man. I've uh, I've ran a red dot on my on my Glock for several years now, but I'm glad that you like the Acro. Like, good for you, man. Uh, yeah. Um, going back to you, what you're talking about as far as like time, like the the guys who care will will try to make a difference, right? The guys who care will will try to implement, you know, doing more. Uh, but the reality is, not all departments are going to give you a 16 hour day, right? So at most, you're probably going to get an eight hour day now there's dudes who, who can get a 16 hour training day or longer than that uh but generally and most guys are going to get an eight hour day so you know you you do as much as you can within that time and then you know from there if you're in charge of the training like things that are that can really help out your department is doing in-service training so it doesn't always have to be a full dedicated live fire day you can you can get guys through some good training through in in service training cycle. So that's that's training them while they're on shift, right? So uh, that's a good way that's a good way of doing that too as well. Um, so you really got to kind of think outside the box and like how can I maximize our our money for the department, our time, our logistics? Like what what can I do to keep guys motivated and spun up throughout the year versus only doing it once a year, right? Because it's, it's not enough to do it once a year, as we know, right? Um, and that's uh that's something that you know hopefully we're changing through time through telling guys like hey you know these are a different ways we can do it through in-service training right uh here's another option like hey if they only give you four hours this is what you can do if they only give you eight hours here's some things to do um and you'll notice that you know anything that i teach i try to keep it again you know data data driven right uh performance driven yeah. and then uh behavior compliant right because yeah i can train anybody to do anything if i have enough time and money but if I don't have enough time and money, I got to keep it like within a, within the human factor, if you will, of like, hey, we know they're going to do this under opposition, so, um, or they do this under stress, so let's keep it behavior compliant, um, you know, and, and give them options to work through that. Well, and hopefully there's, as we're starting to see kind of like a, a cycling, I mean, you know, as as you do with most occupations, a cycling out of older personnel and cycling in of younger folks, who. You, you would hope anyways, uh, have a, a little bit better 
finger on the pulse, so to speak, right. Uh, of, you know, training methods and, and things you're seeing out there, just maybe it's just exposure on, in, on social media, right. To what's out there. Yeah. Hopefully you start to see that, that, that attitude and that perception change things like, Hey, you can dry fire and that's actually going to yield noticeable improvements. Um, <clears throat> you know, one of the things that I was told early on by somebody was, you know, you should never dry fire your gun cause it's bad for it, which is bullshit. <laughs> um, but also that you'll never get better by not shooting, you, you know, dry fire won't, won't fix anything. Um, and I, I just, at the time I was like, oh man, wow, I'm gonna have to spend a lot of money on ammo. This is going to be, this is going to be rough. Um, until I started getting on, you know, Instagram and YouTube and, you know, Facebook and whatever, and seeing guys talking about this going, no, that's, here's, here's some examples of what you can work on. This actually does, that does work. So hopefully it's something that's adopted at a, like an agency wide level for some of these departments that are so hesitant to embrace kind of the, I don't want to say like new age of training methodology, but I guess it is kind of new age, even though it's been around for 20 years or longer, honestly. Yeah. I uh, like, here's the thing. If, if the, uh, the world champs dry fire, like you should be dry firing, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look at the guys that are grandmasters yeah. and the proficiency and the accuracy they have. Yeah. yeah it's pretty clear that it, um, it's effective, you know, but, um, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, Brian, thank you, man. This has been kick ass. Uh, for anybody who's listening, um, can you just throw out kind of? Uh, and I don't know if you're if you're centralized to one location or if you're all around, but where people can uh, find more information on you and where they can look into your classes and stuff. Yeah, guys. So I'm, I'm super easy to get a hold of. You can find me uh, on my website, right, slidetechtraining.com, um, or on Instagram, slidetechtraining. Uh, I respond really. Uh, really fast on on DMs, Instagram, whatever you need, or email me, right? Uh, but I I pretty much train and travel all around the U.S. I'm not I'm based out of Texas, um, so I teach in Texas, but I I teach all over, right? So my full schedule is on the website. I'm getting ready to launch the 2024 schedule as well, and same thing. I'll be pretty much uh, in most states that I can, right? Uh, that'll host me, host me, and so forth. Uh, but yeah, that's that's where you can find me. Cool, man. Yeah. You guys listening, uh, check out what Brian's got going on. Really, really good stuff. Um, and I appreciate you again, man, uh, just you know, carving out the time. I know you're probably busy with the travel and the family stuff and, and life, you know, I assume at some point you like to relax and, and do something other than this. So, uh, I, I do, uh, thank you so much for, for coming on and joining me, man. I appreciate you. Thank you very much. Absolutely, sir. And, uh, stay safe out there and we'll, we'll be in touch. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. I really did. You know, uh, it's really cool to hear what what Brian's doing with Slytac and what he's had the opportunity to do with with both companies, right? With Slytac and with Centerfuge. A lot of you guys probably know Centerfuge, but uh, hearing what he's able to teach, what he's able to share, and also that you know he's he has that experience in law enforcement and relevant and recent experience as a full-time law enforcement uh, officer and as a part-time. So he's still out there doing it. He's experiencing those things. And, and I get it. There's not, he's not the only one that does that, but what, what always shocks me is the number of people that start training companies, not, not necessarily the ones that we've had on this podcast as guests, but just looking around the internet, right? Google search, you know, training opportunities around you or uh, firearms training around. You see so many people that were former 
law enforcement, and then they stopped for a couple of years, and then they start training as something to do while, you know, there's no guarantee there that they've been staying up on training. They've been learning the latest methods. They've been looking at the numbers and the data and, and things like what Brian is doing. Uh, so really, I think kind of a, a very cool opportunity to sit down and talk with somebody who looks at things in a way that, at least to me, makes a lot of sense, very analytically. You look at the numbers and you try to build your training around that data. You know, what you most likely to uh, to, to run into, where you most likely to encounter those things and, 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 and how you can shape and mold uh, your training and how you're helping people prepare for what could possibly be, right, the, I mean, the worst day of their life, you know, really, really bad shit's going to happen if you're employing any of these skills that uh, come into these classes. Now, and I get it, you know, numbers aren't the only thing you should look at. And and certainly Brian didn't say that. Like, I'm, I'm just saying that I think about things from a very analytical standpoint. So I really appreciate people that also think in the same manner and way in which I do. There, there's a ton of other different ways to do it. But I just I always find that way very very fascinating, very uh, interesting. Uh, like I said, people that think the same way that I do. So hopefully you guys picked up on some stuff. Um, you know, if you've seen any of the videos on YouTube uh, that, that of Brian or any of the guys at Centrifuge or Slytac doing, you know, vehicle CQB and injured shooter work, it's really fun to watch. Uh, and it is, it is to a degree fun to attempt. Um, it is very difficult. It is way more difficult than it than it looks, you know, and if you don't believe me, go ahead and like dry fire with a tennis ball, try and work those manipulations, try and keep that, that dot in your pistol optic, you know, completely still when you're going through dry firing using one hand and one nub or one tennis ball, you know what I mean? Like go through and actually try to do that. Or if you can get out in the flat range someplace and try and replicate that kind of training, it is not easy with a handgun, let alone with a rifle where you have so much more weight and it's a longer apparatus in general. Um, so really, really cool to hear all this stuff. And, and certainly somebody that I would, I'm putting on my list of instructors that I would love to have the opportunity to learn from sometime in the future. Uh, you know, fortunately, no matter where you're listening to this podcast at, Brian travels the entire continental US. I mean, unless you're listening outside of the US, in which case, thanks for listening, but I, I apologize. You probably will have some issues getting access to one of Brian's classes. However, if you're somewhere in the continental U.S., Texas, Michigan, somewhere in between, whatever, he travels all over the place, which means that you have access to his information. You just got to check out his course calendar. Head over to the website. Follow him on Instagram. I like what he does on Instagram. He's got really, really good information out there. He talks about fitness as well as gear and things like that. So one of the people, you know, if you're making a list of folks that you should put on the short list of who you should follow, who's worth following these days, I think Brian falls on that list, and I especially think that if you're a law enforcement officer who's out on patrol and is looking for a good source of information or somebody to reach out to and contact, you know, to ask questions, to to pick their brain, Brian's a great source of information for that stuff. So I really do hope you guys uh, enjoyed the discussion that I had. Uh, like I said, I, I had a blast. I'm always, you know, very fortunate or consider myself to be very fortunate to have these kinds of interactions and start and build these relationships with these just tremendous dudes that are out here doing really, really cool shit. So hope you guys liked it. We're going to have more coming in the next several weeks here as we continue on through the summer. Uh, I mean, it's just, it feels like we're running out of time, you know, there's so much we want to do still and, and not enough time to get it done. We got a lot of cool stuff coming down the pipe for you guys, including uh, a couple trips, a couple projects, all that, you know, just, just cool stuff. I wish I could say more right now, but uh, we'll be getting into a lot in the next few weeks here. 
So stay tuned for that. Until then, you guys get out there, hit the range, dry fire, put the work in yourself, invest in a better you. And like we always say here, work hard, train smarter, and be prepared. <laughs>